Okay, so if you have a Bible, you can open to Revelation 22. Look at verses 1 through 5 there. And the text is printed in the bulletin on the next page for you. Um, so this is the final vision. We're almost at the end of the book of Revelation. This is the final vision that John records in Revelation. Uh, it's the furthest look into the future that is recorded for us in all the scriptures. In a sense, it's a, ret- it's a return to the very beginning of what's recorded in the scriptures. It's a restoration and recovery of the paradise of the Garden of Eden, where God first placed humanity in his original creation. But uh, it's, it's not merely a return to the original Eden. It's a new Eden. It's not just a return to an estate of innocence, but it's an arrival in a new glory. It's not just a return to the garden, but it's a procession to this eternal garden city that we find talked about in the last couple chapters of Revelation. So it's easy for us to idealize the past as sort of the good old days. I think that's natural for a lot of people. Think of the past as a golden age. It's long gone. It's easy to believe that uh, the further downstream we get from the original creation, from the original paradise where God dwelt with his people in Eden, the more faded and worn and unrecognizable our whole reality becomes. It's easy for us to think that with God, the origin is perfection. The source is perfection, that there couldn't possibly be something more perfect, something better yet to come than the perfection that we've already seen in the past. But this is the true glory of the true God, is that the last things are better than the first. The last things are better than the first. In the New Eden, God promises us that not only will we recover what we had lost when we lost the first Eden, but He'll give us so much more. And these things are only possible with the triune God, with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as revealed in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's talk about the new Eden that's coming. Let's talk about that. Let's pray, then we'll read the Scripture. Father, you've disclosed your reality to us in the Scriptures. You've even told us about the future. That's marvelous. That's unusual. We pray that you'd help us never to take such things for granted. Help us to hear your voice, to learn from you, to be changed by you. We pray that you'd give us your Spirit's help now as we consider your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed or any curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They'll see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They'll need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So those who trust in Jesus Christ, this is a pretty bright future. That's promised to us. We can expect a bright future where the last things are better than the first. So let's just think about that simple fact 
for one minute that we can, we can expect a bright future where the last things are better than the first. Before we get more into the details of this passage, there's a big fancy word that Christians use, and I've, uh, I think I've probably dropped it on you a few times through the series on the book of Revelation, <clears throat> that we use to talk about the future, that we use to talk about the eternal state and the end. That's a new beginning. There's a fancy Christian word. It's eschatology. It means words about the last things. Words about the last things. And in Christianity, last things are better than the first things. <clears throat> so Christian eschatology, Christian words about the last things, the Christian good news about the future, our understanding of the overall trajectory of history as superintended by God, Christian eschatology is full of hope. And that simple fact is quite unique that we have a hopeful vision of the future. It's unique. <clears throat> I've referred to Peter Lightheart a lot uh, through the series, usually uh, his uh, commentary on the book of Revelation. Uh, but he's got a, a book uh, called Deep Comedy. I think it's very good. And he makes the case that Christianity in the ancient world, it was really alone in its sheer hopefulness about the future. Ancient literature, ancient philosophy was all basically tragic. That means <clears throat> things start off well enough, but then they go downhill, and they end in, in death and misery and tragedy, really. <clears throat> ancient literature and ancient philosophy was basically tragic. The general idea that things are in decline, that people should only expect suffering and death in the end, because the end is an end. It seemed to resonate with everyone, and it seemed like the most honest interpretation of the world. And then along came Christianity with its eschatology that after suffering and death, after the end, comes a new beginning, comes glory, resurrection and glory. After this old world comes a new world. After mourning and grieving comes joy in God's presence forever. Christianity teaches the reality of suffering and death. <clears throat> It's, these things are real. But the victory of life in the end is, is also real. It's what Christianity teaches, as seen in <clears throat> the last Adam, the last man who was better than the first. We see that suffering and death are, are reality, but victory and hope and glory and joy afterwards are real. We see that in the last man. Uh, as one theologian Kelly Capick uh, puts it, Jesus is the eschaton man. He's the last man. He's the omega man. Right? He's the one in whom we see the end. He's the one in whom we see the last things that God has in store for humanity. Our eschatology is Jesus. Our words about the last things. It's Jesus. In Jesus, we see the ultimate destiny of humanity. We see he poured out his life for love's sake on the cross and God raised him up from the dead and God raised him to his right hand. That's the destiny that God has in store for humanity. And in Jesus, we have the promise that this future doesn't just belong to him. This future will also be ours through faith in him, through our spiritual union with him. The last things that are true of Jesus are also going to be the last things that are true of us. Jesus is the good news for our future with God. He's the good news that our trajectory 
It isn't just a tragic one. And this good news, this gospel, has changed the world. It has changed the world. And now there are many more stories with happy endings. It's not just like the ancient literature and ancient philosophy where everything was tragic in the end. And more generally now, people appreciate hope. People think, you got to have hope. People seem to assume that things are going to get better. Whether we can really see it visibly or not, things probably are going to get better. People in general believe these things. Modern people might not like to attribute those changes away from a tragic worldview to a more hopeful one. They might want to not want to attribute those changes to Christian eschatology, Christian words about the last things. But many historians and scholars have shown that it comes from the unique Christian beliefs about our future. Any general hopefulness about the future. Fairy, fairy tale endings. <clears throat> so, visions of the future, they were predominantly dystopian before. And since the rise of Christianity, these visions have become largely utopian. Although, as you can see from uh, modern art, <clears throat> the dystopian future has made some, something of a comeback, right? It's a little bit trendy again lately. <clears throat> but the mere fact is, Christian eschatology is good. The fact that we have things to say about the end, that we have words about the last things, the mere fact that there is such a thing as Christian eschatology is good. It's very good. God speaks words of bright hope for tomorrow because of Jesus. We can trust that the last things will be better than the first, and we should not overlook how rare that is, how special that is, how precious those promises are. As Christians, we don't just have some generic optimism, some baseless optimism about a good future. We hold to specific promises like the ones that are found in our passage this morning. These, these are promises that begin to take shape way back in the earliest chapters of the Scriptures. The first chapters of Genesis, these promises begin to take shape. And they run throughout the whole Bible. The things that we see here in our passage, these, this is the culmination of themes that have been traced through the whole scripture. Promises about the river of the water of life and the tree of life and the presence of the triune God, the presence of Jesus Christ in glory. It's a particular God. It's a a particular Savior making particular promises, not just generic good vibes about the future. It's the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who, as the first chapters of the Bible record, he created the world in order to share the rule of it with his people. This God planted a garden in Eden. He did the work himself, sort of got his hands dirty, so to speak. Don't know how he planted a garden, but he did it. He cultivated He He did the work of cultivating a pleasant place that grew good food, And he placed the first man, Adam, in it to work it and to guard it. This garden was well watered, as you can read in Genesis chapter 2. It was well watered by a river that became four great rivers. The four four must be the largest rivers in the known world at the time. Flowing out to, uh, to water the lands, not just of the garden, but around the garden. Going out from the garden to water the earth this great river that split into four rivers. 
and went out to the nations. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And it's implied that as long as people ate of this tree, uh, they would continue to live in good health. Indefinitely. The idea that you get is the tree of life keeps you alive forever. It gives you eternal life when you eat of the fruit of it. And God met with Adam and his wife in this garden. It wasn't just a garden. It was a garden sanctuary. It was a garden temple. It was a place where Adam called to called to work and to keep it, to work and, and to guard it, was serving. He was doing ministry in God's holy presence in this garden temple. So it was the place where God's presence was to be definitive of the experience. That was the best part of it. That was the most unique part of it, is that you got to live in God's presence and see him face to face and have a relationship with him continually. God blessed Adam and Eve, and he told them to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth and really the idea is to cultivate all of it into something like this garden temple to take what he himself had made which he called good and very good to take this original unstained unblemished good very good creation of God's and to improve it to make it more pleasant, to make it a more productive place to expand it, to make it a place where God would be present with his people in more places and with more people. But things changed. Uh, They did get worse. There was some tragedy. There was that direction. In Genesis 3, the world fell into a spiritual night language you find really throughout the scriptures, spiritual darkness, spiritual night, because humanity despised the God who had been so good to them. And as a result, God placed a curse on the man and on his wife, and he banished them from the garden. He banished them from the tree of life, and he banished them from his presence. And the rest, as they say, is history. But throughout this history... God has not forsaken his goodness. It's not a tragic history that the scriptures record and proclaim. God has not forsaken his blessing. God has not forsaken his purpose and his vision for this world. He's not forsaken his people. Even though we all have forsaken him, he's not forsaken us. He's made promises to restore his people back to his presence. Promises to restore the river of the waters of life, to restore the tree of life to us in a new Eden where all these things are bigger and better than ever before. Bigger and better than they were in that original good and very good creation. In God's creation in the original garden, there was night and day. In the new Eden, there will be no more night. That's probably symbolic. It's the spiritual darkness. The spiritual darkness that settled upon the world with our sin It'll be eradicated with the dawn of eternity in God's presence. God himself will be our light, our constant light. There will be no more curse because there will be no more sin. There will be nothing unclean, nothing to merit God's displeasure, nothing to provoke his righteous anger and his wrath and his curse. 
And that means if there's going to be no more sin in order to provoke God to anger anymore, that means we will be made new. It's not just all other things and circumstances and other people that will be made new and then we'll have a good life. I'll be made new. Our last estate will be better than the first because in the beginning there was the possibility of sinning. But in the last, there won't even be the possibility of sinning. There won't even be the possibility of ruining our relationship with God ever again. We will always walk in the light of His presence. We will always see the face of God. This is dramatically better than the way things have ever been before Jesus came into the world. Not even the holiest of God's people were allowed to see His face. God had said, even to Moses, great Moses, His chosen deliverer of the people of Israel, the greatest Savior that we could find in the Old Testament. God said even to Moses, you cannot see My face, for man shall not see Me and live. We lost that privilege when we were cast out of the first garden. An unholy people cannot see the face of a holy God. But that privilege will be gloriously restored in the last garden. As John writes in another place in 1 John chapter 3, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now. That's true. This is a new reality that we're living in. We have this relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. We're sons and daughters of God. We're children of God now. And what we will be hasn't yet appeared. We could barely even begin to imagine it. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. As He is. It'll be the perfect vision of God, the perfect crystal clear vision of God and of Jesus that will transform us so that we become like Him in glory. There will be, as it says in verse 1, the river of the water of life flowing from the throne in the, the new heaven and new earth, this new Jerusalem, this new Eden, where the throne of God is central. The river of water of life comes from it. <clears throat> so in the symbolic terms of Revelation, what does that mean? I mean, I think we can all hope that there, there are beautiful and majestic rivers even flowing down the middle of golden streets with trees growing on either side. We can hope that that's like a physical reality. But the main point of this is it's a symbolic vision that we're receiving. What does it mean? <clears throat> well, as Joe Hamilton read in our Old Testament reading, Ezekiel had a similar vision. He had a vision of the new temple, the new future temple of the Lord. And water was issuing from the threshold of the temple. It came from the temple. The source of this water really is God. God is the source of this, this living water, this pure water, this clean and refreshing water. <clears throat> so it's issuing from the threshold of the temple, the, the place where God meets with his people. And normally we'd expect um, something like this. It's just a little trickle, right? I mean, if you heard it, the passage... It really is supposed to be surprising because it, issuing from the threshold, from the temple, from the throne, from God's presence, it's just this little trickle of water. And we'd expect a little trickle of water like that to seep into the ground or to evaporate and just basically disappear within a few feet of its source. But with God, the water doesn't dwindle as it gets further from its source. 
it deepens the further it goes. It's something of an impossibility, really. It's not uh, anything that we would normally experience in this world because without any tributaries feeding in, right, without other, other little streams flowing into this little trickle in order to make it a larger body of water, <clears throat> a larger river, just a little trickle from the sanctuary, from the place where God meets with his people, it grows. And it grows until it's a mighty river, deep and wide, and it's a river of this pure, sweet water that, again, unlike our normal experience with rivers and bodies of water, when it pours into the sea, this great body of salt water, this, this pure, clean water doesn't become contaminated and impure. It makes the sea clean and pure. And it's a picture of the Spirit of God. It's a picture of the dynamic and life-giving God going into the world, cleansing and reviving wherever he goes, bringing life wherever he goes. He's not contaminated by death. He turns death into life wherever he goes. It's just like when Jesus touched lepers and everybody expected, you don't touch lepers, you'll catch leprosy from them. They're, they're contagious. It'll, it'll be contagious to you. Catch their disease. But wonderfully, it was his cleanness that was contagious. It was his life and his health and his wholeness that spreads to others and is restorative. And Jesus says that this renewing stream issues forth actually from his people. It says uh, in John's Gospel in chapter 7, Jesus says, Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This river of the waters of life are going to come from the heart of the people who believe in Jesus. He says, we're carrying the sweet water of life wherever we go as we proclaim the gospel of Jesus in the power of the Spirit. So the, the river is flowing from the throne in this vision in Revelation. It's flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, which means that the gift of life, the gift of divine life and restorative, purifying, refreshing, cleansing life that comes from God. It comes from the place where the triune God is worshipped as sovereign. It comes from the place where the God-man, he's on this throne, the God-man who gave himself as a sacrifice. He's the lamb who was slain. He gave himself as a sacrifice. He is enthroned as Lord. When God, when Jesus is enthroned as Lord, then you've got the rivers of the water of life. And also on either side of this river, you've got the tree of life. So it's hard to know um, really from the, the passage whether it's some kind of single gigantic tree that has its roots on either side of the river, uh, spanning the river, or whether it's an orchard of the same kind of tree lining the river, uh, like you see more, I think, clearly in uh, Ezekiel's vision. But in a sense, the symbolism is clear enough. Basically, it's the tree of life, and it bears not just one kind of fruit. It bears 12, 12 kinds, yielding its fruit each month. The tree of life is constantly bearing fruit, which when eaten uh, brings healing and restoration and life with God. And so this 
this picture of this tree, it reminds us, I mean, I think it reminds us of Psalm 1, the Psalm of the Blessed Man who loves the word of the Lord, who's uh, like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Right? So the true blessed man of Psalm 1, the one who is himself actually the tree of life, it's Jesus. He died on a tree so that we could eat the fruit that gives the eternal life, the life with God. And in this new Eden, we, the people of God, we're the tree of life. We're bearing 12 kinds of fruit for the healing of the nations. Remember, 12, 12 is, uh, is the number that represents the people of God. Originally, the 12 tribes of Israel and then the 12 disciples who are the foundation of the church that's marked by this number 12 all throughout the book of Revelation. Just as the rivers of the living water flow out of our hearts, so also the fruit of the Spirit is born in our lives through our union with Jesus as we're grafted into Him as the tree of life, as we're grafted in by faith. So the new Eden is better than the old one. Uh, We don't just drink the waters ourselves. The rivers of living water, they flow from us, from our relationship with God. We don't just partake of the fruit of the tree of life. We participate in the healing And the life of the world, we participate in that. We extend the life of the world, Jesus, to the world. We don't just trust God in the spiritual nighttime. As Jesus says, uh, now is the time when we're in the darkness and we need to cling to him and hold fast to him by faith. We don't just trust him in the spiritual nighttime in the new Eden. We see him and he's our light and he's the light by which we see everything always. And his light never goes away from us. We don't just see God, we become like God. God. We don't just worship the Lord on his throne as his servants, which is fantastic and wonderful and nothing wrong with that. We reign with him forever and ever. We reign with him forever and ever. These are the promises that God's made to his people about our future. This is the Christian eschatology. This is the Christian words about the last things. It's the true trajectory of the history of the humanity with God. This future can only be found in Jesus. Only Jesus holds forth a hopeful future to you. Only the God who is the Father, begetting the Son in the mutual glorification of the Holy Spirit, only only the triune God could create a world with a storyline like this one, where His own perfection and glory increase and abound all the more for having created people and things beside Himself, where there's this happy ending in store for us in spite of our being actually the villains of the story. Only this sovereign God could craft a destiny like this and craft it out of our rebellion, craft it out of our sin against him. When it appears to everyone else that that this ruined world is beyond salvaging, only this God can craft a destiny like this for sinners. Only the lamb who was slain. Slain and yet, behold, who's alive again who lives forever at God's right hand to intercede for us, only the Lamb would offer forgiveness and pardon to rebels like us. Only only the Lamb would share His own rule with those who had sought to supplant Him and usurp His rule from Him. Only Jesus 
can make the last things better than the first. And this is exactly what he's promised to do for his people. That's the true vision of the future. That's the true vision of God that we have in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're often disappointed uh, by things that seem too good to be true. And we don't even want to believe that things could be so good because we've been disappointed by those things before. But your word, your promises, your reality will never disappoint us. We pray that you would overcome our cynicism, that you would grant us relief from our doubts and our fears about you and your promises. We pray that you'd brighten our eyes with the sure hope of the new Eden. We pray that you'd give us eyes only for you and for what you promise. Fill us with wonder and comfort and joy as we consider eternity. And grant us such confidence in this vision of our future with you that you've given us. Grant us such confidence that we live and speak at all times for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.